0: The fact is, said Rabbit, we've missed our way somehow. You see, they were having a small rest by a sandbox on the top of a forest. Pooh was getting rather tired of that sandbox and suspected it of following them around. Because whichever direction they started out in, it seemed to always follow them. And they ended up at it every time. Rabbit said once triumphantly, now I know where we are. And Pooh said loudly, "'So do I.'" Piglet said nothing. He had tried to think of something to say, but the only thing that he could think of was, "'Help, help!' And it seemed silly to say that. Well, when Pooh and Rabbit were with him, after all. "'Well,' said Rabbit, after a long silence of nobody thanking him for the nice walk that they were having, "'we'd better get on, I suppose. "'Which way shall we try next?' How would it be, said Pooh slowly, if as soon as we are out of sight of the sandbox, we try to find it again? What's the good of that, said Rabbit? Well, said Pooh, we keep looking for a home and not finding it. So I thought that if we looked for the sandbox, then we would sure not to find it. Which would be a good thing, because we might find ourselves that we're, that what we weren't looking for, we actually find. I don't see much sense in that, said Rabbit. No, said Pooh humbly, there isn't much at all. Friends, this morning, perhaps you're like our friends from the Hundred Acre Woods, who've lost their way home. Maybe you're like Piglet, knowing that you're lost and wanting to cry for help, but you're too embarrassed to do it because you're around your friends. Or perhaps you're like Pooh, you're just shooting in the dark hoping to find your way home by randomly looking for the right answer. Or, perhaps you're like Rabbit, so self-righteous, so self-confident, that he doesn't even realize that he's lost. Friends, wherever you are this morning, my hope is that through John 7, a passage filled with confusion, a passage brimming with conspiracy and conceptions and Disappointments. Friend, you would find your way home to Jesus this morning through the truth that Jesus reveals in John chapter 7. Before I read the text in John 7, I want to just sort of remind us I'm thankful for Pastor Rod uh, preaching last week in my absence, and I want to just remind us where we were a number of weeks ago. You'll be reminded that John has organized his gospel, and particularly the first 12 chapters around several signs that Jesus did. Miracles that pointed to his identity. In John chapter 6, we saw Jesus feeding the multitude and walking on water. Both of which pointed to Jesus' identity as one greater than Moses. Of course, Moses is, is a central figure in the life of Israel. He was the one whom God used to lead the people out of slavery. He was the one God used to speak to the people through the writing of the Torah, the law, the first five books of our Bibles. Jesus revealed himself through the feeding and the walking on water that he was the long-awaited rescuer who would finally and fully deliver God's people from their enemies. And here in chapter 7, we are told that Jesus and the other Jews are gathering together for yet another festival. You see, Jesus in John chapter 6 did the miracle of the feeding of the multitude and the walking on the water during the Passover season. The exact time when God had fed his people in the wilderness and had supplied them with a leader who would deliver them through the, from their enemies. God again is here in this passage doing it in the midst of another festival, another party called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. This festival in the life of Israel was one of these three annual feasts that included the Passover. It was during this festival here in chapter 7 that they would construct little tents or booths where they would live in. And they would do this for eight days as a reminder of their time spent in the wilderness after their exile from the land of Egypt. In the midst of this festival, they would uh, take time to celebrate and remember God's provisions during their wilderness wanderings. Where God had provided manna from heaven and where God had split open rocks and given them water to drink. Also during this festival, the people would worship and sacrifice to God for his faithfulness, not only in the past, but also in the future. You see, it was the prophets that foretold a a season of of the tabernacle festival where where God would finally and fully rescue his people again and dwell with them forever. This festival also included a time of, of water and light, and there was this This really ornate water ceremony that was added later on in the life of Israel where the priest would pour water out as a reminder of God's provision of life and guidance of His people. And it was this festival that Jesus chose to go up into Jerusalem and to declare the glory of Himself and to say that something greater than this festival is here. That the fulfillment of it has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And to point forward to a greater season when God's people would enjoy endless provisions, endless life that he himself would provide. Well, if that is our context, I hope you've turned to John 7. If you've not already, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 of John chapter 7. hear the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time is yet not, has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world hates you. Excuse me, rather, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the festival. I'm not going up at this feast, for my time is yet not fully come. After this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him about among the people. While some said, He's a good man. Others said, No, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews, therefore, marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but is his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am seeking my own, speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from and where, where the Christ appears. No one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and in him and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one would lay hands on him because his hour had yet not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than these? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering about these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me where I am. You cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me, you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who were to believe in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why do you not bring him? The officers answered, No one has ever spoken like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Well, friends, I read that whole passage because I wanted to give you a sense of the point. There was immense confusion, wasn't there, about who Jesus was? a lot of questions, 70 questions in all, in all these verses, tons of questions, questions abounding. Going back and forth, Jesus questioning, the crowds questioning, the Pharisees questioning, questions. But in the midst of such confusion, in the midst of such chaos that this scene presents, it's just a compact way, John does such a wonderful job picturing that day, clarity came. In the midst of confusion and conspiracy, clarity came as Jesus openly and unashamedly declared that he is the Christ. The one who gives spiritual life through his spirit. And this is the point we want us to consider this morning. I want us to organize sort of our thoughts around those three words that I just mentioned. Confusion, conspiracy, and clarity. First, the confusion we saw there of the people concerning Jesus' true identity. Secondly, I want us to think about the conspiracy of the relig- the religious leaders to reject Jesus and his true identity, and third and finally the clarity given by Jesus concerning who he is and what he came to do. Well, first here we saw throughout this chapter the confusion of the people concerning Jesus. There was tremendous confusion, wasn't there? The, the people we find in this this narrative beset. Possess- A profound misunderstanding of Jesus' identity and purpose. They were struggling to make heads or tails of Jesus. He seemed sort of elusive to their understanding. From his brothers, to the crowds, uh, to those officers that were sent to arrest him, there was confusion about who Jesus was. Was he a good man, or was he much more? Was he leading people astray or was he leading them to God? Well, notice here first the confusion over Jesus's purpose found in Jesus's brother's comments in verses three and four. Look, there's verses three and four again. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. You see, his brothers were encouraging him to go to the festival, a festival where you would have tons of Jews coming in from all over the world to worship God. That What a perfect opportunity. The crowds were gathered to go to the festival. And this seems reasonable, doesn't it? If someone's running for public office, of course they don't just hang out with a a few devout followers, but they're out among the people, right? They, They go out and they platform and they talk about what they're they're running for they want the people to get to know them they want to be public and this is precisely the logic of jesus's brothers they're saying to him hey jesus if you want to be this famous rabbi that we think you want to be this famous leader of israel then you need to have some face time with the people you got to get out with the people jesus but their suggestion only served to illustrate further their own misunderstanding of Jesus. Friend, what a reminder it is that you can be really close to Jesus and still be confused about who Jesus is. Jesus' brothers lived with Jesus and were still confused about him. John gives us those sobering words, doesn't he, there in verse 5? For not even his brothers believed in him. Notice also the confusion of the crowds gathered in Jerusalem. Some were giving Jesus charitable comments. They were saying, hey, he's a good guy. He's a good man. Others, a more sort of conclusive judgment. No, he's leading the people astray. Overall, you see that the crowd was utterly confused. Uh, So much of the word that John uses there of mummering, muttering about them. It was sort of... uh, Kind of like gossiping, but not quite. It was a sense of a a conversation that was confused. We're not sure about this guy. Their confusion is most evident in their responses there in verses 14 through 24. I won't read it again to you. Confusion over Jesus' own teaching. Jesus seeking to clarify the miracle that he did in chapter 5. When he healed the, the, the lame man, he did it on the Sabbath day. And the Jews were enraged because he did it on the Sabbath day. And the people are trying to make heads or tails of it because Jesus and the religious leaders seem to be uh, at odds with one another. And Jesus here is saying, listen, the Sabbath pointed to a reality in which I brought into the present by healing this man. So a number of weeks ago, we dealt with that the Sabbath foreshadowed a season, an eternal season of rest, which you and I have begun to experience already through the new birth. Well, some of them were driven to confusion over who the Messiah would be. Not only were they confused about Jesus' actions, but they were very confused about what, who Jesus really was. Was he really the long-awaited prophet, priest, and king? Was he the Christ, the the person whom God promised through the prophets would come and finally and fully rescue God's people? Well, the Gospel of John is really after that question, remember. It's about putting forward the argument that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. He is the rescuer. We begin to see in this chapter some of the confusion uh, in first century Judaism about the Messianic prophecies some thought that when the when the messiah came he would come with tremendous power setting himself up as a king and delivering god's people from the tyranny of roman occupation some thought that the messiah would would come and when he did no one would know where he came from we see a little bit of that when the there in verse 40 uh, and and following we say this is, we know where... Jesus from Galilee. We kind of know where he's from. We know his parents. Uh, we're pretty sure the Old Testament says that when the, when the Christ comes, we're not going to sure where he comes from. In all, there was great confusion over the Old Testament prophets and over who the Christ really was. And the point is this. The people were projecting on Jesus in an image of Christ that wasn't there. Fundamentally, they merely saw Jesus as a public figure in his rise to fame. This is what his brothers saw. Some of the crowds there in verse 12, you see, ultimately, just saw Jesus as a good man. He's a good person. He's doing good things. He, I mean, he fed you know, 10,000 people, 15,000 people. He's a good guy, doing good work. Others saw him in verse 12 as a deceiver. No, he's leading people astray. In verse 20, they accuse him of being demon-possessed. No, he's got a demon. He's crazy. We're not sure what's going on. And still others felt he didn't have the right education. Look there at verse 15. How how, how does this guy know so much? He didn't have any formal teaching. He didn't have any formal rabbinical training. How is it that he knows all these things? In their quest to find the Messiah, they replaced God's prophecy with man's words. This is what they were doing. In their confusion about the Christ, they were projecting on Jesus their own image of what the Messiah should be and do. Friends, this is the devastating effect of the fall. Adam and Eve demonstrated a similar uh, thinking in Genesis 3. When they were deceived into thinking differently about God's Word. When they took God's Word and they distorted it to fit their program in life. This is what the The Bible fundamentally concludes about all of us that no one understands and that no one seeks after God. You see, misunderstandings come from disagreements over which are God's commands and which are man's words. This is what we see in John chapter 7. We see this illustrated over the people's confusion. What are they confused about? They're confused about God's word. Friend, this morning, are you confused about Jesus? Do you understand who he is and what the Bible reveals him to be? Perhaps this morning you are like the crowd. You too have made up your mind about Jesus. You have some some general uh, conclusions about him. Maybe some are charitable. Jesus is a good person. He called people to do some really wonderful things like love others and give to the poor. Friends, these are the conclusions of Judaism and Islam. And these may be yours as well. On the other hand, perhaps your conclusions about Jesus are less than charitable. He's leading people astray. Christianity leads people astray. Established religion leads people astray. I mean, after all, we're scientific people. We're educated. We're enlightened. How can you tell me to believe in a man who lived 2,000 years ago and is dead. Brothers and sisters, we often face the temptation to think of Jesus in our own terms. We are often like the crowds. We're okay with Jesus so long as we get to define who Jesus is. We see the crowds cheering him on, so long as Jesus is feeding people. This is what we saw in John chapter 6, right? The crowds followed Jesus, not because they wanted to, to live like Jesus wanted them to live, but what did Jesus say? Because they ate the bread and had the fill, their bellies were full. And so this morning, maybe you just wanted Jesus who's going to fill your belly, who's going to fill your bank account. Friends, this isn't the Jesus of the Bible. They only saw it and loved Jesus Because he gave them what they wanted. Is that why you follow Jesus? Is that why you're here this morning? Is that why you come each week? Because you want to get something from Jesus? Something for your own selfish end? Brother, is that you? Sister, do you find the temptation to love Jesus? To stick close to Jesus only when he does what you want? Friends, it's easy to follow Jesus when he says things we like. As I said a few weeks ago, if you read the Gospel of John, you will find that Jesus says some of the hardest things when the crowds are the biggest. And that just goes against logic. When the crowds are the largest, you say things that people want to hear so that you can get the chants and praises of the people. Friends, if you want to see that, you just turn on your TV this week. Alright? Just watch it. Then politicians aren't going to say anything hard. They're going to say exactly what you want to hear. What your ear wants to hear. And you're going to cheer. But Jesus calls us to holiness and obedience. And we find it intolerable. We want nothing to do with the Jesus that says we must obey. Friends, this is the Jesus of the Bible. He is the Christ who has come in power. He is the one who came to die that we might live. So the first word we encounter in this chapter is confusion. The crowds, even the religious leaders, are confused about who Jesus is. And the point we take away is that you cannot understand someone in whom you are unwilling to trust. That's the fundamental issue in this chapter. There was humility lacking, not only in the crowds, but as we'll see next, in the religious leaders. Because you you can't ever believe someone whom you don't trust. And we know that in our everyday life. If someone tells us a story and we we know that person's a notorious liar, we don't believe them. But if they're a trustworthy person, then we trust their story and we believe it. And this passage makes abundantly. That only those who humble themselves can believe. Well, The second word we want to see in this this chapter is conspiracy. John chapter 7 brings to light the darkness of the religious establishment in Jerusalem. In stark contrast to anything we've seen up to this point, there's been some hinting at the Jewish leaders. But here in chapter 7, we see them in all of their glory. As they seek from beginning to end to kill Jesus. We're told beginning in verse 1, aren't we? That the Jews, that is the religious leaders, not not the Jewish nation, not all the Jews, but the Jews here in John's gospel is a reference to the religious establishment. And the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are unmentioned in John's gospel, are the ones seeking to kill him. So we see the beginning of the chapter and then what do we see at the end of the chapter but the religious leaders arguing over what they should do with Jesus. And as we'll see next week, chapter 8 just seems to boil over with a hostility. Ultimately, John's gospel is driving at something. and It's driving to a, a particular end, which will be the death of Jesus at the hands of his own people. John provides for us a vivid picture of the deceit and deception of God's own people. That they would seek to do nothing but kill the Son of God. Notice first the length to which they will go in order to conspire against Jesus. At the festival, notice what they're doing. This is a time of excitement and celebration and, and wonder of God's love and provision. And what are the religious leaders? What are the teachers doing? But they are consumed by jealousy and rage and want to destroy Jesus. Rather than doing their job, which was to lead the people, they were in the background trying to get the crowds to find Jesus and bring him to them. So we see there in verse 11, for example, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? The picture that John has here is a sort of progressive idea. They were were going through the crowds. Where is Jesus? Looking for him under every rock. It's a real pitiful scene, is it not? Then in verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowds muttering these things about him, and the chief priest and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. These men, who are the experts in the In Jerusalem, the the men who were to be the moral examples to the people were so blinded by their self-righteousness that they conspired together to kill Jesus. And in order to do that, they have to get the crowds to buy in on their scheme. You see, bad leadership is infectious. It spreads. It infects the lives of the people in which are following And John here gives us a sobering conclusion of their actions at the beginning of the gospel, does he not? That Jesus came to his own, John chapter 1, verse 1. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. You see, one of the big questions of John's gospel is is what is going to become of God's son and God's historic people? What what has become of God's historic people? What what in, on earth are they doing? These are the people who knew the scriptures better than anyone else. They are the ones who should have been eagerly awaiting his arrival. Yet they are the ones who reject him, despised him, who conspired to kill him. The people whom God delivered from slavery in Egypt. The people who prov- who God provided for in the wilderness. The people whom he ushered into the promised land and gave them... Wonderful kings and leaders. The one whom through the prophets he promised. To finally and fully deliver. These people reject and despise him. It's truly a fulfillment of Isaiah 53. That he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows. And acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So often we think of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 as a picture of the cross. Jesus lived a long life before the cross of his own people. People that Paul tells us that Christ himself was the spiritual rock that supplied their needs in the wilderness. Jesus himself, the very people that he cared for all those years are the people who wanted nothing to do with You see, from the very beginning, these religious leaders had made up their mind about Jesus. They gave him absolutely no thought. They did not consider for a moment any of the claims that he was making. Their self-righteous hearts were hardened by the truth. Six times in chapter 7, John records the efforts of the religious leaders to kill them. Six times in one little short chapter that we read in five minutes, John records that they want to kill him. Look there at verse, uh, in chapter 7, there at the end in verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees and said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one's ever spoken like this man before. Like even these guys were smart enough to figure it out. The Pharisees answered, Have you also been deceived? Notice their response. They immediately go on the defense. Have you been deceived? And then they go to self-righteous pride. Look verse 48. Here it is. Has hab any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? In other words, they say, "We're the religious experts. We are the ones who know everything. Ha- have any of us?" Now ironically, you got to love John. Ironically, who follows up this conversation? At the end of the chapter is none other than Nicodemus. And Nicodemus has gone to Jesus in John chapter 3. And Nicodemus will be the one who buries Jesus. The one who does come to believe in him. See, this kind of thinking isn't reserved to zealous religious leaders. We also tend to make our minds up about Jesus without giving him any real thought. This morning, you might think, oh, I know Jesus. I believe in Jesus. But maybe you doubt some aspect of Jesus. Perhaps he isn't the answer to all your questions. He isn't the answer to all your longings and desires. Perhaps you, this morning, friend, have closed your mind to Jesus. What you need isn't more arguments, plausible arguments, more signs, more proof. What you need is humility. You see, the response to this passage, the the begging response is that of humility. The Bible tells us that God gives grace to the humble. The religious leaders were too proud to know their need for Jesus. God gives grace to the humble. The humble receive the understanding to know God's word. The humble are the ones who receive the power to believe in Christ. Christ. Friend, will you humble yourself today? Consider that perhaps you don't know as much as you think. That you don't have things quite as figured out. And your life is a testimony to the fact you have nothing figured out. This morning, will you humble yourself by believing that you are not as good as you think you are? You you see, Jesus came to be a rescuer. To rescue people. And that implies that you understand your need to be rescued. See, the problem with the religious leaders in John chapter 7 is they didn't need a rescuer. They were fine. They didn't need anyone to come and deliver them. They were completely happy with their uh, very nice arrangement they had with the Roman occupiers. It was kind of a sweet deal for them, friend, I pray this morning that the Lord would expose the delusional world that you're living in and demonstrate to you your real need to be rescued. Jesus is calling you to believe in him and to trust in him, to leave the world of deception and self-righteousness and to believe. Brothers and sisters, don't think that this passage isn't just speaking to Christians so clearly. The rebellion we see in these religious leaders, I think, lies in our own hearts so often. Friends, remember that the story of rebellion is our story. The actions of Adam and Eve were fundamentally treasonous rebellion against their king. And that was our life before the gospel. Before Jesus interjected, we wanted to live and rule our own lives. And we have a sort of a hangover from that that world we once lived in. And Jesus says something most clear in this passage. Look at verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking of my own authority. You see, belief, Jesus is saying, is not merely some intellectual activity, some understanding of a set of of facts that we can write down, but about obeying the commands of Christ. You see, chaos in life results when we merely accept the facts about Jesus rather than simultaneously obeying Jesus. You know, so often we give this sort of passing assent to Jesus. Yes, I believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe Jesus came. He was lived, died, buried, and ra- rose again. He's coming again and go. I believe all those things. But we don't live like we believe that. We are driven by anxieties and fears and and, and seduced into lust in this world and love for this world. Rather than really putting the rubber to the road when it comes to believing in Jesus. Friend, it is quite ridiculous to say you believe in Jesus and not obey Jesus. The Bible has zero category for someone who would claim the name of Christ and who is not following Christ in all ways. It is ridiculous to say that you believe in Jesus but live lusting for more power, money, cars, sex, stuff, respect, whatever. This is what the religious leaders lived by and why they conspired to kill Jesus. Friend, you cannot believe in someone you are unwilling to obey, it only leads to conspiracy. Well, third and finally, we see that third word that we thought about is clarity. I'm going to drive this point home at the end. The clarity of Jesus concerning his true identity. Jesus provides in this chapter a clarity amidst the confusion and conspiracy that surrounded his true identity. Jesus pronounces who he is. That he is the Messiah, the Christ who has come from God and that he is equal with God. This is the point that this entire chapter and as we already said, the entire gospel drives at. That Jesus has come from God to display the Father's glory and to do the Father's will. And the only response that, that we are to have is to believe in him, to trust in him as the source of spiritual life. That Jesus is as water that provides life here on earth. So Jesus is the water of life, the one who provides spiritual life to our dead soul. This is the primary truth that Jesus is driving at and why he chooses this festival. Repeatedly in this chapter, he draws out this truth that I'm from God. We just read an example of that there in verse 17. In other words, if you believe his words, you believe him who sent me. i.e., You believe I came from the father. And for some of us this morning, as we read this chapter, we're like, I know Jesus came from God. I know that he's the Christ. I believe in him. But you know, when you're so familiar with things, you tend to lose the wonder of it, right? You, you tend to lose the excitement of it all. We, we, we tend to lose the, the, the wonder that Christ came and that Jesus clothed himself in human flesh. Brothers and sisters, allow this just to settle in your hearts this morning. So we love that hymn, come behold the wondrous mystery. It is a wondrous mystery mystery, that Jesus would clothe himself in human flesh. Friend, do you feel the weight of such truth that Jesus came from God? That that Jesus left the celestial beauty and fellowship of the triune God to come to us. He left the continual praises and worship of angels to be conspired against. To be lied about, to be called a drunkard and a a swindler. To be reviled by his own people. To be despised and rejected by the very men and women whom he came to rescue. See, Jesus didn't have to come. You have a wrong understanding about God if you think God had to save you. If God had to act. Like an ought to. God would have been just as righteous and just as as good to not do anything when Adam and Eve rebelled. But to annihilate them for all of eternity. Cast them into hell. And to be done. Wash his hands of this place. But in his abundant grace for us he sent his son to die. Friend, do you doubt God's love for you this morning? These demands drive our worship of Jesus. This is what compelled us on a rainy, gloomy day to get our rear ends out of bed and to gather with God's people, not because I felt like it, because I was compelled to, because it was so compelling to come and to gather with brothers and sisters whom we will spend all of eternity with, singing the very same songs. As a foretaste, As a little nibble this morning of what we will enjoy for all of eternity, trillion upon trillion of years. This is what excites us as believers. This is why we've gathered. Well, verse 27 and 28 serve 37, excuse me, and 38 lest you get confused, uh, 37 and 38 serve as the climax of John chapter 7. We are told that on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John offers us some commentary there in verse 39. Now this Jesus said about the spirit whom whom those who were to believe in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, later in John's Gospel, John will deal with the Holy Spirit in a fuller way. And here in this passage, Jesus cho- chose a particular point in the celebration to make a theological point. See, on this last day, this great day of the feast. Uh, the chief priest would go to the pool of Siloam, dip a bunch of water in there, and come and pour it out on the altar as a sacrifice to God. And this ceremony was a sort of symbolic act where the people were acknowledging of God's provision in their wilderness wanderings and his perpetual provisions. That is, that through the prophets there was a foreshadowing of a season a future season in the life of Israel where God would once again provide miraculously as he had done in those wilderness wanderings. It was a part of a reminder of how God had watered them there in Mirbah as they wandered through the wilderness, how God continued to pour out his grace upon them. And Jesus here stands up in the midst of the ceremonies, this water is being poured, poured out and makes a provocative statement that everyone in the room would have heard and understood what he's saying. Jesus says, this is fulfilled in me. What's happening right now, Jesus says, what all of this points to points to me." As Jesus says, yeah, you see this water that the priest is pulling out? You see this water that symbolizes God's continual provision of life and sustenance and grace and mercy? Yeah, you know what? That's all found in me. Come to me. Jesus makes radical claim that he is the divine son of God by making this short statement and everyone knows it. So much so that the Pharisees are Red-faced and ready for blood. Make no mistake, Jesus makes a tremendous claim that whoever comes to him will live forever. This is a bold claim for a mere man to make. Friend, are you thirsty this morning? You see, your body, your soul, your body rather, your physical body, is much like your soul. It requires nutrients to survive. Water, food. We can go a long time without food. Though it doesn't appear we can. Um, We can't go very long without water. We need water to survive. We need water to live. And Jesus here declares that you cannot live spiritually without me. That I am the one that will satisfy All that your soul thirsts for. Boy, it is a grueling thing to be thirsty, isn't it? You know, sometimes it just sneaks up on you and you you don't even realize it. Maybe you're working in the yard or maybe you're cleaning the house and and you go uh, all day without a drink of water. And it just sort of sneaks up on you. But when it hits you, it hits you. And, And, you know, you've probably experienced this. You can't satisfy. You drink one bottle of water or one cup of water, and it just doesn't seem to satisfy. After a while, your belly's like gets really full. Why? Well, for all the scientists in the room, it's because it's not just your belly that needs water. It's all your cells in your body are now drained of water, and these cells need water to live, and you're right, that's why it takes time. Friends, our spiritual life is that way without Jesus. It sneaks up on us. We think we're doing well. We've got this sort of vitality and energy. And all of a sudden it hits us. And we are spiritually dead. And so what we do is we start grabbing drinks to drink. And we start pounding drink, water, water after a bottle of water. Lust and money. And we pound these things back and we think that they'll satisfy. Man, if I just get that promotion at, at work. Man, if I can just get my, my spouse to act right. If I can just get my kids in line, then I'll be happy. If I can just buy that new car or buy that new house or see my boss fired, whatever it is, I'll be happy. But it doesn't. Because Jesus makes fundamentally clear in this passage that your thirsting and your searching will never be satisfied apart from him. Your empty soul is only meant to be satisfied By Jesus. It was created that way. And it can't be any other way. Satan knows it. This fallen world knows it. And it's going to keep giving you cheap substitutes. For the real thing. And it will never satisfy. Don Whitney provides a humble conclusion about a thirsty soul. He writes this. Many who claim they are questing for God are not thirsting for God as he has revealed himself into Scripture, but only for God as they want him to be, or for a God who will give them what they want. You see, friend, Jesus only works, to put it bluntly, if it's the Jesus whom he has revealed himself to be. Are you one who claims to be thirsting for God? To be thirsting to be satisfied, but yet this morning wanting to Jesus just to rescue you from your debt? Rescue you from your bad health? Rescue you from your broken relationships? Rescue you from a fallen situation? You see, Jesus came to rescue you from all those things. But more fundamentally than all that, He came to rescue you from you. He came to rescue you from the, this crazy life that you've created that you think is wonderful and amazing, but it is a rebellious life against God. Jesus came to rescue us from ourselves, from our sin nature, from living life our own way. And brothers and sisters, we will continue to experience the crisis of faith that so many of us have when we merely accept Jesus without relying on him for what he says he will provide. He says, if you come to me, you will never thirst. If you will come to me, out of your heart will flow living water. What he's speaking about here is the indwelling of the Spirit of God that he gives to every believer. Brother, sister, this morning, if you are a born-again believer, you have this in your soul right now. It is not a future reality. It is not something that comes when you die and go to glory. It is something that is present today. This is meant to encourage you. Lift your head high. Jesus promised. Claim that promise this morning. Believe that promise this morning that the Spirit of God dwells within you. Will you trust Jesus this morning? It's so easy to trust Jesus when life is going good. But will you trust him even in the darkness of a fallen world? Will you come to him and drink and satisfy in him alone? Believe in him alone? Will you see that, that unless you lose your life? Uh, lose. Lose. Similar little word, loose, right? Never know which one it's spelled. I don't remember. Loose. Jesus uses this language of losing your life and finding it. And it implies an aspect of loosing your life. Like letting go of your life and giving it to him. He says it this way in Matthew chapter 10. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's similar to what Jesus is saying here in this chapter. If you don't realize you're thirsty, you won't come to me to have your thirst quenched. In other words, if you continually find your thirst satisfied in the things of this world, you will never, ever go to Jesus to be satisfied. Never will. This morning, I encourage you to humble yourself. To come to Jesus. See that he alone will satisfy your thirst. You can't believe in someone you're unwilling to trust. You can't believe in someone you're, you're not humble to, to consider. This morning, Jesus is calling us to believe in him. To believe that he came and died. That you might have life and have it eternally. Will you believe in him today? Or... Or will you stay like our our friend Rabbit? So self-righteously blind that you'll be happy to stay lost. Or, Or perhaps like Piglet. Wanting to cry for help, but too proud of those around them to do so. Friend, believe on Jesus today. Find the rescuer that God has sent to rescue from your sins and from all of your enemies. Let's pray. Father, we do pray this morning that each one of us would believe upon Jesus today, that we would turn from life, living life our own way and follow after Christ. Father, we pray we would do this for your glory and our eternal good in Christ's name. Amen.